The views and opinions expressed by the guests of the Diplosport podcast do not necessarily represent the official policy or position of any agency of the United States government or any organization, public or private. Today's guest on the Diplosport podcast is skeleton racer Katie Ulander, who is a three-time Olympian currently working to make her fourth team for the PyeongChang Games which will be held in South Korea in, as she mentions later in the interview, well less than two years. Katie is figuring prominently in the news now, kind of in the middle of the winter quad cycle, because of the fact that she came in fourth place just off the podium in the Sochi Games back in 2014. She'll mention that she came in fourth in less time than it takes to blink over the course of several miles down the track. And what makes this even more interesting is that the woman that came in third place is a Russian athlete who goes by the name of Elena Nikitina. And Elena is implicated as a drug cheat. And Katie mentions that she has an Olympic bronze medal pending a decision of the International Skeleton Federation and uh, the Olympic Committee. Very timely discussion, especially as we head into the Rio cycle here and much debate surrounding the Russian national team in all sports going into those games considering the systemic doping regime that was carried out it seems uh, from the Russian under the instruction of the Russian government great interview with Katie she has a tremendous perspective does not play the victim at all and it's great to hear how she uses these setbacks as a motivation and inspiration as she go, goes ahead and gets ready to compete in her next Olympic Games and hopefully make her next Olympic team. Without further ado, here's my interview with Katie Ulander. What's your name and uh, what do you do for a living? My name is Katie Ulander. I do skeleton as a hobby slash amateur sport and then I work for Life University which is a functional neurology um, clinic that's associated with the university um, I am a world champion three-time Olympian bronze medal pending and um, yeah I don't know what else to say I'm pretty awesome I'm <laughs> fun. I love life <laughs> you, you certainly are and one of the reasons why you're awesome is the sport that you do uh now it, it's not necessarily the most mainstream of sports but could you tell me a little a little bit about what skeleton is and how it differs from say luge or the bobsled well hopefully people out there know what luge and bobsled are yeah. i quickly reference the jamaican bobsled team okay, sure. and then a skeleton basically goes down the same track but you're on a cookie sheet that weighs about 70 pounds and you lay on your stomach and you do a lot of wishing and hoping and giggling. <laughs> how, f how fast are you going when you're laying on your stomach going down the track? fastest I've gone is 90. I'd say average top speed is about 75, 80. Yeah, and, um, but I mean, that's no big deal because you have brakes, right? And uh, it's real easy to slow down. Oh, it's all about just committing to the speed. We don't have brakes. <laughs> and you come to a point where you have two choices. You can freak out. Or you can embrace the fear, and I think if you embrace the fear rather than letting it consume you, it actually can give you strength, and I think a lot of people get that. I think that's what drew me to it, was the ability to be relaxed through chaos and just let the fear become something that surged a refusal to submit to failure. 
How does one end up becoming a skeleton athlete? I have no idea, to be honest. <laughs> it's totally random. Uh, somebody just talked me into trying it, and I had to make a decision on whether I would pursue my dream to become the next Diane Foster to survive the jungle or go be an Olympian. And honestly, that's the way I thought about it at 18, 19, and I would have accepted any other pathways. I was going to take it to the top. So I just happened to have a an encounter with the right person, and I think it's about showing that you're willing to put everything you have into whatever you're doing, and those opportunities will present themselves. You just have to have the courage to do it. How how were you identified as somebody that might excel at the sport? Uh, were were you an exceptional sprinter? Were you a great athlete at, at you know in high school uh, or early on in college? All of those and a little crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I was doing a lot of uh, freestyle skiing, and I met a bobsledder in a gym, and she suggested I try skeleton and. I wasn't really sure what it was. Uh, I graduated high school in 2002, just after the first Olympics of the sports return. Um, so I said, sure, I'll try it. It looks pretty crazy, and it looked terrifying, which meant I had to do it. And after three weeks, I won junior nationals, and I went to junior worlds and got seventh, and then I won senior nationals. So that's why it became quite an apparent crossroads of chasing my dream of becoming the next Diane Foster or an Olympian. Uh, let's rewind. In addition to having a, a temperament that lends itself to, to being a world-class athlete, you were also blessed with good genes, right? Uh, the, being a, a world-class athlete runs in the family. I had no choice. My father... <laughs> was a throwback in baseball and life. Uh, he was a major league baseball player in the 60s, 70s. Uh, just my hero, to be honest. And he instilled every bit of the way that I view sport and life um, as far as work ethic, perseverance, honor, integrity, respect, um, and teamwork. Is it true that you keep his NL championship ring on a chain around your neck? Yes, the NLCS ring. Yeah, so they beat the Pirates to go uh, lose to the Oakland A's. Catfish Hunter, man, he was too good. <laughs> uh, yeah, but, and this was when he was on the Cincinnati Reds, right? Yeah, that was, mm-hmm. uh, I think, his last World Series. He did two World Series, one with the Twins and one with the Reds. Mm-hmm. Uh, he has such a, well, I say like I feel like he's always here, uh, but he, he spoke very highly of the Twins and... I just spoke with Tony Oliva recently. I'm hoping to go visit and catch up with them. And Charlie uh, Manuel. I mean, he had so many great friends. Um, the, the guys back then were just uh, throwback. They were <laughs> classics. You know, the, I can't even think of Ken Griffey was there. George Foster, Johnny Bench. And most people my age don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> but, but, the, but they were legends. They, they were his teammates with the Reds. And I know your father uh, worked with Charlie when Charlie was a manager. Your dad was a coach on his staff, right? That was with the Indians, yeah. Uh, now, afterwards, it, he did he retire to be a farmer? Uh, in addition to working for baseball, he had a ranch in western Kansas. And is that where – did you grow up on a farm, uh, on that farm? No. <laughs> um, I was talked into, well, basically, I called my dad when I won my first overall World Cup, mm-hmm. uh, and I got a big chunk of cash, and I was like, well, it's not enough really to buy a house or get a down payment. What do I do with this? I know I should invest. And he was like, you should buy cows. And I looked at him sideways like, excuse me? 
what? <laughs> and then he explained to me how it would work, and then he would cover the overhead, and that we would invest together. So I bought uh, 11 head of cattle in 2007, and then he passed away in 2009, so I had no choice but to go out to the farm and, you know, like me, dive head first <laughs> into <laughs> the ranching life, and I fell in love with it. It's, I don't know, the essence of America. You've got hard work, teamwork, community, um, and it's just about taking care of the bigger picture and, and not selfishly yourself. So there's something very rewarding about that and feeding America. Yeah, right. Now, how did you, when, when you were a, a little girl, what, what sports did you start playing early on? Baseball. Okay. <laughs> I did gym, gymnastics, baseball, softball, golf, track and field, powerlifting, volleyball, ski racing. Um, I don't know if I'm forgetting anything, but I think... I mean, that's what, I don't really brag about my accolades because I pretty much went out of high school and into the Olympic sports. But um, I definitely I played boys baseball for almost my whole childhood. Actually, my whole childhood. I started when I was seven and played through high school. So you played on the boys' team? You didn't play softball in high school? Well, they're two different sports. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember when I was in second grade, I was watching the boys do drills and actually play the sport and I was doing cartwheels in the outfield so I didn't really think of it like boys versus girls I thought of it like they're doing something and I'm bored so I just went and started playing baseball um, and that was fine until I got to high school and then people got upset but um, I was actually convinced I'd be a major league baseball player until I graduated high school or until like maybe my junior year when I realized five foot three and being female wasn't really in my favor. <laughs> but that hasn't stopped you from from being a successful athlete, and we'll, we'll get to, to that in a second. But Oh, no, not at all. I think I benefited from the challenges. I mean, I was an average baseball player. I think I would have been, I could have made it maybe to the minors, but the major leagues are the best of the best, and I'm a woman. Um, you know, I have some physical limitations compared to men, but that's part of being a woman, and I'm, I'm okay with it. I love being a woman. The, the values that you learned through athletics growing up and learning about who you are, uh, and, and I heard you talk about this a few minutes ago, uh, uh, I think that there's some parallels between your love of being uh, somebody that's in farming and agriculture. Uh, what, what are some of the things that you learned from sports uh, in your developmental years? Uh, well, baseball is a really great sport because every time you step up to the plate, you're, you're battling the odds. So it teaches you perseverance. It teaches you self-confidence or self-belief. Um, because every time you step up to the box, the odds are you're not going to get a hit. But every time you step into the box, you have to believe that you're going to get a hit. Um, so I think that was probably my most memorable and awesome, I don't know how to explain what I'm saying, <laughs> but a sport that just left such an imprint and I think facilitated my ability to um, never pay attention to what the odds are or what everyone else says and the naysayers and just listen to my heart and my own beliefs. Um, I mean, also to the fact that I was a girl playing with the boys. <laughs> I didn't have a choice. I wasn't going to listen to them. Um, but I think there are a lot of lessons like that in sport. Um, my father used to give me so much awesome advice. Uh, I remember when I was going to Junior Worlds, after just three weeks of being on a sled, I didn't feel like I deserved it. I was going to compete with Olympic champions, America's Cup champions, national champions, European champions, 
And then there was me that didn't even own my own equipment. And he said, you know, that reminds me of my first time in the batter's box at Yankee Stadium with Mickey Mantle on the outfield. He's like, I couldn't get my knees to stop shaking, and I was freaking out. And then I realized that the legends before me, like Mickey Mantle, took the same steps that I'm taking up to the plate. And we have the same choice when we get there. And nobody cares how long it took you to get to that plate. You make your own path. But when you get there, you both have to hit the ball. Now, are you going to believe and focus on your task, or are you going to worry about how you got there? <laughs> how cool is that to have uh, a story with, with your father that Mickey Mantle plays prominently uh, in in the middle you know I, I i'm a new yorker i'm a yankee fan and uh, that's just so cool that he was on the field with him and in his first game and in that wonderful ballpark of the old yankee stadium well that's i mean i think i was blessed in being able to grow up with these stories of these men and athletes that held integrity and teamwork and honor to such a high standard i mean i feel like it's kind of a dying out um perspective, the traditional perspective of taking ownership for your successes and your responsibilities and just continually debriefing and, and owning those things so that you can continue to get better. Um, there were never any excuses allowed. And I try to surround myself with people that keep me in that same frame of mind, which is why I'm training at Altus. They um, constantly challenge me mentally and physically to uphold um, those same lessons I learned from my father as a kid. And so you're you're in Arizona now, right? Uh, doing your training, and are, are you focused on Pyeongchang? Is that the the next big goal on on the horizon, or uh, what, where's the focus yep. for you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm finally taking my dad's advice, and I'm only doing one sport. Mm-hmm. I put away all my extreme toys, like my kite board and my skateboard and my skis and the keys to the snowmobile they are all gone i am just sledding and being a professional athlete that doesn't get paid (laughs) (laughs) yeah skeleton not not a not a huge revenue generator uh, correct it's not you're not going to get rich being a a a world-class skeleton racer no i'm extremely lucky to have gotten a job with vice university it's given me an opportunity to educate kids and spread the word on the, on brain health and how concussions can be prevented and recovered from appropriately. So I just, I feel like I'm kind of got my hands in all the buckets I want to be in, but I'm blessed because I wouldn't be able to compete in the sport without their help. You, you have suffered at least one concussion, correct? At least is the correct way to put it. <laughs> Uh, and how is it just from di- different sports? Is, is it, uh, did you have any particularly nasty, uh, incidents on, on the track or? Going into Sochi, the, my seventh run down the track, I got a pretty bad concussion and I suffered post concussion syndrome the entire Olympic year. I went to a functional neurology clinic in Dallas and got treated alongside of combat veterans, um, that quickly put my my like my self pity in perspective when I heard stories of them um, crawling and fighting and um, just never giving up despite being damaged and blown up and shot at. I realized that I was being a big baby, thinking you know, oh woe is me, I'm going to the Olympics with another injury. And I realized that they were teaching me I didn't need to focus on what I didn't have. 
but focus on what I did have and make sure I brought 100% of it to Russia to fight. Um, and when I got there, I still, my, my symptoms were better for sure, but my courage was restored. And I went there damaged, but willing to take every bit of heart and passion I had and bring it on the line, on the ice in Russia to attempt to get a medal. Um, yeah, so my concussion was quite the experience, but the fact that um, those veterans were there, I'm very passionate about assisting um, the veterans recovering from TBIs and then educating other athletes on how to prevent concussions and um, also give them hope that a concussion doesn't mean their career is over. It can be reversed. Is there a tie there uh, between your commitment to, to wearing a uniform that has your country's name on it uh, and and what you learned and, and drew from these men and women that you were alongside in Dallas, it, it, it you know is national pride one of the things that gets you up in the morning to to compete for your fourth Olympic bid? Most definitely, and I think that um, to go beyond that, it's also the the, the, the one percent. I think the one percent of the population that has that fire in their belly that is undeniable. I mean, and had. Um, not only that, but that, that fire in your belly, it can quickly catch to a number of things that you become passionate about. And national pride is definitely one of them. And it's not only that, but it's loyalty. Um, and national pride goes beyond borders. Our country is so unique in that it was meant to have tolerance. It was meant to accept people from other nations and grow because of the place of freedom. And I think, you know, internationals make fun of us a little bit because we talk about freedom, but that's what our country was founded upon, is the acceptance of so many different cultures and um, heritages to come here and be who they are and who they want to be. Uh, and I, I try to represent that as best I can with tolerance, acceptance, love, but also I'm going to kick your butt. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the most American sentence that anybody's ever said to me. You're welcome. <laughs> you're, you're welcome, America. Uh, um, you've also been at least, a, if not world-class, uh, a national caliber athlete in at least two other sports. Um, it, maybe you could talk a little bit about your cycling uh, career and also your uh, weight, your powerlifting uh, background, Olympic weightlifting Olympic background. Lifting. Olympic, uh, Olympic, Olympic lifting. You were pretty darn close to making uh, the summer Olympics teams in a couple sports too, correct? Well, I wouldn't say that, but I definitely gave it a really good shot. I, my third meet ever was Olympic trial. I qualified for Olympic trial in Olympic weightlifting, 58 kilo class lifter. And I was going to go for it again in Rio, but I ended up having two major surgeries, a uh, microfracture labral replacement in my hip and a microfracture reconstruction of my ankle. So I did cycling because I couldn't run and I couldn't work out. And I was really tired of being indoors. Um, and it was amazing. It was a lot of fun. Unfortunately, there was no real room to do anything with it uh, since we didn't qualify at the spot. Uh, I'm hoping to potentially go back to it after Korea, but I'm just going to kind of ride the wave and see what happens. Um, but I have to say that I am drawn to competition and that feeling of relaxed chaos. 
<laughs> and is that why you're able to to show up in your third meet in in a couple different sports and and just be you know ready to go and and ready to compete at this incredibly high level? You know, I can't say that I'm the strongest. I can't say that I'm the fastest, but I can say that I have a an innate ability to work hard and to put every bit of ounce of what I got out there. And I think that maybe some people hesitate to do that, but I just go hard. And that's what I was talking about, the 1%. You know, they get that fire in their their belly. They know what that passion is like, and it's just something that's undeniable. And it has to be focused on something. (laughs) And for you, right now, it's focused on getting to the Winter Olympics in South Korea in in two years. We're we're halfway through the quad right now. Uh, How are you feeling with your... Yeah, how are you feeling with like your training? Seventeen months. Oh. Not that I'm counting. Oh, <laughs> how's your training coming? How are you feeling? I am healthy. I'm so excited about it. Like you have no idea. I'm healthy for the first time in a really long time. I can't legitimately say that I. And I have kind of said this before. I was like, oh, I have no pain most of the time. No, this is for real. Like I don't have pain. Like my leg is not going out on me. My ankle works. Devin Hawkins did my surgeries, and they did phenomenal. This is, these are my tenth, nine and tenth, ninth and tenth surgeries, um, and I just took a year off and have really taken my debrief from Sochi seriously. I wanted to make sure that I was there was no question of me winning a medal this time. That I was going to make sure I didn't make the same mistakes. The first mistake was getting injured, so all the toys went in the closet. Um, I am training with Altus, which is the best place to push me mentally and physically in the pursuit of excellence. I, and I try to hang out around people that keep my perspective in line with the lessons my father taught me. And that includes Navy SEALs like Paige Gill, Drago, Tiny, um, <laughs> and then <laughs> their associates. <laughs> and it, and uh, Is Arizona a skeleton hotbed? How, how did you end up there? Um... Altus came here. So my coach, Stuart McMillan, and Dan Pass started a um, like a World Athletic Center that turned into Altus. So there are 15 different nations here training uh, for Rio, and they're coaching them, and um, I just want to be surrounded with the best. So and what, um, I, I can't say the desert's my first choice. Sure. I've actually chosen Laguna Beach. <laughs> And what you're you're working with track and field athletes, right? Because get, getting a good start is a huge part of your sport too, right? The explosive sprint right off the bat. Right. So I am working I'm alongside track and field athletes. I'm doing my own program, but I have to say that I'm really hoping osmosis works. <laughs> <laughs> um, and... You mentioned there are 15 other nations there. I was hoping maybe you could talk a little bit about, uh, I thought you did a great job explaining what it meant to represent your country. Uh, what does it mean to you to be able to engage with people from around the world through your sport? Uh, it's, it's amazing because I'm hoping that the media here and some of the bias kind of uh, dissipates, and it does when we're around each other, because that's not... I feel like the media highlights extremes to a certain extent to get a rise out of people. And then I I don't know why, but it feels as though people are self-segregating. Like they want so badly to be a part of a group that another group isn't good enough or isn't 
awesome. And I think that's the opposite of what the message is meant to be. Like, be proud. Be proud to be American. Be proud to be Christian, Muslim, whatever. But it doesn't mean that you're any better than the other. It's just, you know, we're meant to live in the country with tolerance. So it's been really refreshing to be around um, countries from all over the world, different religions. And we started book clubs and uh, different philosophical discussions, like, as often as we can, because it's the greatest way to learn. Um, I'm really strong in my beliefs and who I am and my upbringing, but um, I really thoroughly enjoy a lot of these people here from different cultures and nations and learning about where they're from and and how they live. Um, And we have common ground, and that's sport. We all go hard, we all have fun, and... um, yeah, I don't know. I'm just, I'm blessed. I'm blessed to be here. I was going to lead you into that, but you you did it yourself. I, I was going to ask if sport was the common denominator and, and the, the thing that brought down walls and, and brought people together, but you you said it better than me setting you up to say it. Um, thanks. uh, you're welcome. Man, you're on fire. Um, uh, okay. So at the top of the conversation, uh, you, you made a comment. You mentioned that you were a a bronze medal pending athlete out of Sochi. And, uh, I was just wondering, (laughs) understood, but, uh, it's certainly something, and I'm trying to keep these interviews evergreen and, and there's certainly, uh, interesting uh, news that, that may or may not break this weekend. on the, the status of, of Russian athletes uh, even being allowed to compete in Rio. There's a great article, a recent article the New York Times ran a couple of days ago. Um, it, you know, is, is there a, a Reader's Digest version of, uh, of, of where you ended up at, at the end of the Sochi Games? I lost by quicker than you can blink, over four miles. <laughs> <laughs> it was... Four runs, four miles, four hundredths of a second, and you cannot blink that fast. Um, the only reason she beat me was because her start was faster than mine. I outdrove her. Mm-hmm. Um, and I honestly was really confused watching her come down and, and seeing that I lost because I thought I had won. Um, she drove so poorly, I didn't see her holding on to that little bit of time, and somehow she did. Um, but I, I accepted it, and I debriefed, and I've committed to Korea and making sure that I don't lose again. This whole doping scandal has been nothing but heart. Uh, a heartbreak. Uh, it's disappointment and it's heartbreaking for all Olympians and all clean athletes because we don't want to see stuff like this happen. Especially years after the fact when it comes to terms with our, our results. And it hurts the Russians, it hurts Americans, it hurts the world. But I think the only way to move forward is for them to uphold the rules that exist, um, but not without compassion to allow those that broke the rules to come forward and help us figure out a way to prevent this from happening again. We really do need to come together and unite on a um, Olympics against doping or a world against doping. I think it's very, very important. Uh, so the only way I can help do that is by representing what I believe in, and that's being an awesome American over here competing clean and training my butt off. <laughs> do do you see yourself, uh, you know, a, a, you're going to kick butt in South Korea in a couple of years, but after that, when when you face what every athlete inevitably faces, uh, you know, uh, stepping off the track, do you see yourself staying involved as a leader in, in the Olympic movement, as a leader uh, for the Olympic Committee? Is there is there a role for you I, beyond the track? I'm not, a, I'm not opposed to 
taking a leadership role, but I'm not one to nominate myself either. So um, if that were to happen, it would have to come from my uh, colleagues and teammates or from someone else because um, I'm also okay with working at Lake University and going home on the ranch. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I'm okay being in the middle of nowhere and hanging out with my family and community. Um, but I'm more than happy to step up and be a leader when it's necessary. And this is a, a personal question, but um, if it does come out, and I know it's a hypothetical too, but if it does come out that there was doping involved and, and the Russian athlete that did win the bronze uh, ends up being stripped of I'm them. I'm sorry, but didn't it come out that it was verified by WADA? What they're waiting on is the IOC's decision, decision. on okay. what to do about it. It, if you are uh, awarded the bronze medal, I, I mean, you know, will you be upset that you didn't have your moment in Sochi to be on the stand? Or uh, how- I, I don't see any point in looking backward. The things mm-hmm. that I couldn't have any control over. Mm-hmm. What would motivate me is that they took action and did the right thing. Yep. Um, and it, it motivates me to train harder and continue to represent the Olympic movement and the Olympic spirit in the way that I think it deserves to be. Mm-hmm. Because it gives me hope that the right things will be done and that compassion will be held. And that I can, man, I'm going to chase that medal in Korea even harder. But if, if I was awarded the bronze, it, it would definitely add fuel to my passion and my fire to represent the USA even better. Sure. And that's, uh, what a great outlook. Just, you, hey, you know, what's in the past is in the past. I, I can, I can either dwell on it or I can use that to fuel me to be an e- even better person, even a better athlete, a, a better American. Nailed it 100%. <laughs> and I can only hope, like, my dream is to inspire others as my military buddies inspired me. Because mm-hmm. um, it's, it's not a good place to be in self pity. And that was one of the things I learned from them was, and I said, you know, I might, have harder times again in my life but I hope that that is the last time that I have any self-pity while I'm going through it because they taught me just to get up move forward and figure out how to do better you know as a veteran myself uh hearing you say stuff like that is uh I'd, I'd it, those aren't empty words. And it, it, hearing you talk that way about, uh, the men and women that, that I put the uniform on with, that I went to war with, uh, really, really means a lot. And just, you know, not, not to blow sunshine here, but, uh, thank you for that. And, uh, and, and I can't tell you what, what that means to, to me and, and those of us that, uh, have had to, to make the sacrifices and, and serve the country in that regard. Man, I don't, you don't owe me a thanks by any means. <laughs> I owe you one. But that feels weird because I feel like someone thanking me to go to the Olympics. But I just high five. Like, thanks for being awesome. That's what I want to say. Kudos for keeping the fire up because that's what I appreciate about our men and women in the military. And thank you for that because iron sharpens iron. That was, man, that's badass. They, they, and that, that leads me into the last thing. One of the things that I'm studying this year is the role, uh, the interplay between sports and government. A lot of the athletes that you compete against, uh, come from countries that have ministries of sport that are, that go, the government puts money into the Olympic Committee directly and, and helps fund the, these people for better or worse in some cases. Um, do you think there's a place for that in the United States? Should the U.S. government take more, a more prominent role or, or do you think that, uh, uh, th- that the system is fine the way, or I don't want to put words in your mouth, that, that the system works right now? I don't think that we should ever be complacent in the way that something is functioning. I think there's always room for improvement. 
As far as incorporating government funding, I'm not opposed to it, but I don't really understand um, what the proposal is or how it would function. Uh, I think that there are a lot of different things to look at and ways to look at it. Um, it, it scares me a little bit because I'm, I'm for uh, smaller uh, government, like government having um, less to do with my life <laughs> than more, um, but I'm not opposed to having help either. So I think it's, it's just a matter of how it would function. Um, that's a big question, and I think that uh, I would have to ask more questions <laughs> to sure. be able to answer it because <laughs> I'm not fully educated on how it would function. Yeah. And a, a number of folks that I've talked to just say, listen, the, the government is big enough as it is. You know, it, it doesn't, it's not the answer to everything and it doesn't necessarily need to get bigger. Um, but, uh, yeah. I, no, I mean, what's the difference between the government being involved or a union? Sure. I don't really know. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I don't know how they would function differently. I think that there is definitely an opportunity for the government to be, um, involved and in, in more represented at the Olympics. Uh, I'd love to see uh, the Olympics not become political, but a place where that's left behind and it's more about um, tolerance and acceptance of culture. That's how we learn from each other. And that's what the Olympics are about. And that's where I think there's no better way to end this interview. I really appreciate your time. And uh, Katie, th- thank you very much. Good luck uh, continuing with your training and, uh, and continuing to make us proud.